Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Daniel 2, verse 36. All right. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler of them over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out without, out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known unto the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. I like that. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> 100%. No questions. All right. We're going to go through these empires. Look at Daniel 2.38. Um, I want you, while, while it is historically correct that these empires followed each other. 
Um, I struggle with relying on history to help me understand the Bible. That seems backwards to me. Um, but we want to use the Bible to help understand everything else, including history. It just so happens that the history falls in line perfectly with what the Bible says. Uh, so I, I don't see any reason to deny it or to change it. Look at verse 38. Um, and, where, who, and, whosoever, um, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand. And hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Who's that talking about? Nebuchadnezzar. So, so this image that we're talking about, that we're addressing, that Larkin lays out here, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. And then it, it just the, the kingdoms descend with the body down to the feet and toes. All right? So... Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Babylon is, is represented by the gold. So you, one of the things you have to keep in mind here, um, it's talking, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you're the head of gold, but it's the kingdom that he's addressing. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of that kingdom, but it's, it's the kingdom as a whole that he's actually talking about. Um, Nebuchadnezzar begins this process, but the key is the kingdom, Babylon. Uh, in all the kingdoms that follow, no king is mentioned, only the kingdoms are named. Now, except for one exclusion here, uh, Cyrus, the, the Bible makes a big deal about Cyrus. Um, now, here is going to be Alexander the Great under Grisha. Um, He's never mentioned in the Bible. And so this is where when I'm studying, I struggle to say, oh, this is Alexander the Great. But again, it is it is a historical fact that Alexander the Great took the Persian Empire. He is the the Grecian king that took out the Persian Empire. So it it fits. But it, but the the point is not the person. The point is the kingdom. All right. So. Throughout these passages, the words king and kingdom are often used interchangeably. All right, so we don't want to get fixated on the person. While it does start with Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, there were, there were Babylonian kings before Nebuchadnezzar. But God chose to use Nebuchadnezzar to start the time of the Gentiles. So he is an important figure. But you've got to remember, the full context, the bigger context here is Babylon. And Medo-Persia and Grisha and Rome. So, so it's not... Some of the commentaries get so caught up on the people, Alexander and Cyrus and, and Nebuchadnezzar. That's where it gets confusing. Because what happens when Nebuchadnezzar passes off the scene? He's dead. Well, the kingdom's still going until Belshazzar. And, and then at, while Belshazzar is king, Darius under the reign of Cyrus, takes Babylon. Right, so what's important there is not, not necessarily the people involved, but this kingdom, just as God said, took that kingdom, just like God said. Right, so if you start, you start breaking, it, breaking it down to the individual people, while it's interesting to know that and to know who the, who the heads of these kingdoms were, that's fine, but... If you start looking at the life of that person instead of the kingdom itself, 
you're going to get off track because that person eventually passes away or is gone, but the kingdom keeps going. So, so anyway, it's just something to keep in mind as you're looking at these things. Babylon lasted from Nebuchadnezzar to his grandson, Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a weak and incompetent king who was taken by Medo-Persia. So then that brings us to the next kingdom, Medo-Persia. Silver. Silver is not as expensive, as nice as gold. Gold is very expensive. Um, Its price fluctuates over time, but generally speaking, gold is more expensive, more valuable than silver. Silver is far more valuable than brass or iron. I mean, you got iron sheets on the roof of this building. (laughs) There's just no value to it uh, uh, unless you turn it into something useful. Iron iron is strong. It breaks stuff. (laughs) That's God's point with Rome. Uh, it's it, he calls it iron, and he talks he continually talks about their strength, and that they break, they bruise, and they break. Uh, so that's that's what God says about them. But anyway, so Medo Persia, uh, the chest and arms of silver. The reality is that our ideas of what this image looked like are all made up from the imagination of commentators. We don't actually know what the image looked like at all. Many of the drawings, especially the work of Clarence Larkin, is amazing. But it all came from his imagination. And that's fine. Again, and and I go on to say in the notes, it's not unreasonable. The description of it is is an image of something that has a head, a chest, two arms, two legs, two feet. What would that be? Yeah, and ten toes. I mean, that's obviously it's a a person. But again, the point is that this is his... This is what he imagined the image might look like. And so, so it's not, this is not out of the Bible necessarily. This is a man saying, I think this is what Daniel might have seen. All right, so, so those characteristics are not, you know, without some conjecture. The chest and arms of silver, which does seem to objectively represent Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian kingdom. It, it actually, uh, the reason I say seem to is because You've got to use another passage, which we'll look at in just a moment, to verify that. But Medo-Persia did take the Babylonian Empire. It says that plainly in the Bible. We know that plainly from history. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it falls in line perfectly with what Daniel is saying. Um, since they were the Medes and the Persians, so this is, you know, so you have the image. And you get one of my drawings. All right, so you... There's his head, small head. It's a little neck right there. And then he's got broad shoulders. All right, so here's his, his chest and arms. Well, if you were to divide the body like this, you would have the Medes and Persians. Right, so so that, that seems to be the idea. You have two arms because you have two, two uh, kingdoms united. And, and when, you, you know, when you call them the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus was Persian. He could have just said, no, we are the Persians, and that's it. 
But Darius, who took the kingdom, was a Mede. And so, so the, the, the fact that they use the name like this, Medes and Persians, seems to recognize some sort of equality between the two kingdoms. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the head, and that's it. You didn't come in and say, well, we're the Babylonians and the Assyrians. <laughs> no, you're going in the lion's den. <laughs> you just, you, Nebuchadnezzar was the sole monarch. That's it. He had extreme power. Uh, the Medes and the Persians, the kings were bound, as you, if you remember with Darius, we'll see it in, in chapter 6. Darius made a law and he couldn't overturn his own law. And I believe I have in my notes, we're going to look at the differences in these, in these, uh, these kingdoms. The Bible seems to give a lot of credence to, to a single person being in power and having all the power. That is basically how God set things up. He, he told Israel, I'm your king. Israel said, no, we want a man to be our king. He said, okay, Saul is your king. Not Saul, and then here's the, here's the rest of the government, but Saul is your king. Not Saul and a Senate and Saul and a Congress and Saul and, a, you know, uh, somebody who can, you know, the, the, it's not a government of the people. <laughs> that's, that's not what God established. That's a modern, relatively American idea. And now it's in our churches. Our churches think you're supposed to vote on everything. Well, you wouldn't find that in the Bible if I gave you 20 years to search for it. Uh, they, they've taken the idea of a democracy and turned the church into a democracy. And that's an unbiblical idea. Suffer not a woman to teach nor to assert authority over a man. You're going to have a business meeting where it's going to be primarily women who stand up and rebuke the pastor for something they didn't like. <laughs> They're, you know, on, on the financial sheet or decision made or whatever the case may be. You're putting people in a position through the structure of your church to violate the word of God. You're encouraging it. You're teaching it. All right. And so and, and the rest of the world got it from American Baptists who are often red blooded Americans who, who love our republic. And that's fine. I, I, I get that. And that's the beauty of an independent Baptist church. You want to institute voting and deal with the outcome of business meetings? I mean, think about that. Are we running a business? Or are we running a church? All right. Now, I'm not... I'm not attacking the way things are done here. Pastor Paul is the pastor. He will establish it and he will order it the way he wants. But, but this idea that the church is a democracy, it's not in the Bible. And then when you look at the governments that God himself set up or established or pointed to as being good, they were not democracies. It was a sole monarch. So you go from Nebuchadnezzar, who had all the power, Every, every ounce of power was vested in Nebuchadnezzar, whom he, he, whom he set up, he set up, who he tore down, he tore down. If he wanted to kill you, if he wanted you to live, whatever he wanted, it happened. But then you get to Medo-Persia, and now you have the Persian king who signs a law, and he's like, oh, I can't do anything about it. I already signed it into law. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would do something about it. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar would say, take it out of the law. Right? If I made a dumb decision, get rid of it. Well, in, in, in Persia, they said, well, you know, our laws can't be altered. Daniel's got to go in the lion's den. Right? He sat there all night and grieved all night because the king made a law that he himself couldn't overturn. <laughs> that, that's a decline in power. 
Then you get to Alexander. Alexander the Great had four generals. And these four generals, they, they, had, they had, you know, so we went from a king who could just, just spit out a law. It goes into effect, but he can't change it. So now the king is being checked by four of his generals for its military power. So it's, it's even more of a decline. Then by the time you get to Rome, many of the Caesars were appointed or voted on. And then they had to contend with the Senate. And the Senate had an, oftentimes as much power as the emperor, Caesar. So it's, it's, for, it's more of a decline in power. And so today you have a republic a democracy, or communism. That's it. And we look at these things as being wonderful. You think it through, they're not so wonderful. So, so it, 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 and it plays out in the church, it plays out in public. Do you want the drunkard on the street voting for who your president's going to be? Well, under a democracy, he has the right to vote. Well, in your church, do you want the person who shows up once a month and hates everything you do, but is a member? They have a say in the direction of your church. They get to vote on what spiritual matters the church is going to take part in. We haven't seen you for a month. Well, I knew you were having a business meeting, so I came to get my vote in. (laughs) As a church member, so what are you going to do? Tell them you can't vote? So you have, and in America, when, when the republic was initially started, only people who owned property or were successful to some extent were allowed to vote. Now we look at that today and we say, oh, that's horrible. Everyone should have the right to vote. Should they? We have all these videos of, in America of, of reporters going around. I'll give you an example. When Barack Obama, Barack Obama was running for president against John McCain, and John McCain picked a female woman named Sarah Palin as his running mate. All right. These reporters were going out in New York City, Los Angeles, all these different cities. And they were asking people, what do you think about Barack Obama choosing Sarah Palin as his running mate? And they're all saying, oh, we think it's great. It's a good idea. The man he's running against picked Sarah Palin as his running mate. These people had no clue. And they get to vote. Barack Obama wanted to, wanted to um, close down the war in Iraq. So the reporters asked him, so what do you think about Barack Obama wanting to, to extend the war in Iraq and send more troops? And they're like, oh, I think we should do it. It's a good idea. I'd vote for him to do that. That was not his position. He wanted to close down the war in Iraq, but they had no idea. But they get to vote. People who receive money from the government, own nothing, produce nothing, participate in society in no way at all have the right to vote for who's going to give them their next paycheck. And that's what happens when people who, who, are not, who are not functional members of the society or functional members of the church, they get a say in the direction of your society or of your church. What they're going to do is they're going to help steer whatever that organization is in a direction that benefits them. I don't work. I want a president who's going to give me stuff. And that's, that's, that's democracy. It's a decline. It's not an improvement. Now, America is an American republic. It's a little bit different. It's still a decline in power. But when you have a constitutional republic, 
it guarantees the rights of every individual as long as people abide by that constitution. And for a long time, that's how it's been in America, and we've had a lot of freedom because of it. But more and more and more, they are scrapping what the Constitution says. And if they abandon that document, then America's going to go the way of the rest of the world. It's, it's heading rapidly in that direction. But that's still a decline in power. You go from Nebuchadnezzar, who could identify a problem and say, this is the solution, go do it. We've talked a lot about the negatives of Nebuchadnezzar, but it, what, what was created under his reign was one of the greatest, most powerful, most incredible societies the world has ever seen. And it's because he didn't say, we'll send it to the Congress and let them vote on it and see if they can agree, and then we'll, we'll go from there. No, Nebuchadnezzar said, How, do we have the money for it? Go do it. Do it now. If we don't have the money for it, go find the money, then go do it. There was no, well, let's, let's form a committee and create a bureaucracy so that we can discuss it and talk about it. And we'll have the Democrats and we'll have the Republicans and we'll get everybody's ideas. That's, it sounds like a dreamy idea, but it's counterproductive. Now, the American founding fathers knew that. <laughs> and they said, we're going to create a government that is stupid, that, it, that can't, that's difficult to get things done. That way, somebody can't run off with the government and, and take it in a tyrannical direction. And, it, and that has worked very well so far, but more and more uh, people are, are moving away from that. So anyways, all that to say that we're going from Nebuchadnezzar to the Medes and Persians, and it's a decline in power. Uh, look at Daniel 2.39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now, as you see, they're still going to have rule over the earth. So, so the, these, these kingdoms are not, they're not smaller, but they're inferior. Does that make sense? So, so Nebuchadnezzar has... Extreme power. Cyrus has a decent amount of power. Alexander is ruled by generals. And then by the time you get to Rome, the Caesars are dominated by the Senate, which is where the, this idea of a government by the people comes from, which, by the way, is a is a false hope. <laughs> that that was the, you know, that's what everybody's. We, we want we want someone that's for the people. Well, none of them are for the people. They're all for themselves. They're going to tell you they're for the people so that you will vote for them. And then once they, once you put them in power, then they're going to remind you that they don't care about you. <laughs> Thanks for putting me here. <laughs> uh, put them in jail. <laughs> So they could care less about you. Look at Daniel 5. This is why it's useless to get caught up in political campaigns and ideas. Daniel 5, verses 30 through 31. And that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. 
And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now look at uh, Daniel 8. Daniel 8 and verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of, of Media and Persia. And then finally, Daniel 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the Lord uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, you know what a day that must have been for Daniel? Because when he got these books or got his hands on them and read and understood, it would be 70 years. It was 70 years when Cyrus took over Babylon. So that he had to know something was coming. And then immediately, Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus signed the decree Send, send Judah back to rebuild the temple. So it must have been a very exciting day. Um, so the two horns of the ram in Daniel 8 correspond to the two arms of the image in Daniel 2. This implies the unified kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar was a single head, but Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian kingdom, is a dual kingdom united. Cyrus is the king of, of the Medes and the Persians. He was prophesied of in Scripture around 175 years before his birth. Look at Isaiah 44. Now you tell me another religion that can look out 175 years before somebody even exists and say, a Persian king named Cyrus is going to be my servant, my shepherd, and do what I want and set Judah free from Babylon. <laughs> that's, that's very specific. <laughs> so I, Isaiah 44, verse 28. That saith, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. That's pretty incredible. Um, look at Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 45 is a very interesting chapter. Verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two, the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make thee crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. Isn't that interesting? 175 years before Cyrus comes around, we're talking about brass and iron. It's, it's just, we don't have time to discuss the significance of it all, but it's very interesting. Verse 3 and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, and thou, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. God is telling you, 175 years before he's born, I'm calling his name right now. I'm telling you what he's going to do. <laughs> and then he comes along and he does it. Verse 4, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, 
I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Cyrus had no idea who God was. Didn't even exist. But God said, I know who he is, and I'm going to use him for this purpose. And it happened just like God said. The Bible says, known unto God are all his works. So when God decides he's going to do something, it will be done. Nothing will change it. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will prevent it. When God makes his mind up, I know what my works are. I know what I'm going to accomplish. And I will get that done. You can count on it. It's going to happen. The Persian Empire was brought to an end when Alexander the Great invaded Persia. He not only defeated Persia, but he took the great city, Babylon. So it's not only the name of the kingdom, that city was was incredible. That city was, uh, the, the descriptions of that city with its floating gardens and um, it was just an incredible place. And so um, Alexander the Great took that city. There seemed to be a connection here. When Nebuchadnezzar controlled Babylon, he possessed world dominion. When Cyrus took Babylon, he also took that dominion. When Alexander the Great took Babylon, he again took world dominion along with it. The Roman kingdom also controlled Babylon for a short time, but by the time they arrived, Babylon was basically in ruins. It was no longer the glorious city of its previous fame. All right. The Grecian Empire, the abdomen of brass. Look at Daniel 8. Daniel chapter 8. Verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So uh, we'll, we'll get into the details of all this later, but if you look in verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, which follows Media Persia. Um, historically, it is a fact that Alexander the Great the king of Grecia took Persia. So there's no question about that. And we'll talk about Grecia more in the later chapters. Um, next is the Roman Empire. So the legs of iron. Look at uh, Daniel 9. We've read them already, but it's good to read it again and, um, and again and again. You should memorize these verses. Verses 24 through 27, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the, unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, the streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah the, be cut off, but not for himself. And, uh, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week... 
He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and, and, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. All right, for our purposes, though, verse, uh, verses 24 and 25 and 26, they talk about the coming of Messiah the Prince and then Messiah the Prince being cut off. Well, that's a, that, that took place under the Roman Empire when Rome was in charge. That's when Jesus Christ was walking the earth. That's when um, John the Baptist was, was present. Uh, this is important because it explains why there are only four kingdoms and two are yet to be fulfilled. There was a large gap of time between the fourth kingdom and the fifth kingdom because the church age is in between. These kingdoms are only important with reference to their domination of Babylon and Jerusalem. When the Roman kingdom took Jerusalem, it was under the reign. It was under their reign when Messiah the prince was cut off. And at that time, the Lord's dealings with Israel paused and the church age began. The dealings with these empires will not start again until the church is called away and the tribulation begins. We will discuss this in more detail later. The feet of toes and iron. All right. So the feet and toes, iron and clay mingled together. They're often taught as the revived Roman Empire. All right. Now, you should study what those men have to say and you should compare it to what I'm going to show you. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that can be borne out reasonably scripturally. Um, I, I, I see one of the reasons one of the main reasons they say that is because of this. The ten toes is composed of iron mixed with clay. So they they call it a revival of the Roman Empire. Well, there's several problems with that. Number one, it doesn't say it's a revival of any any empire. Secondly, if you were going to say it's the revival of an empire, when we get to Revelation, who is it talking about? Babylon. So if you were going to say it's the revival of an empire, reasonably, it, it, it'd have to be Babylon. It wouldn't be Rome. It just, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's an incoherent position. There's not enough there to, to, for me to say that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense. Um, it has a lot of problems, but a lot of good men teach it. So uh, listen to what they have to say, and then you make your decision. Um, now, the feet and toes, it's iron mixed with clay. So let's, let's dive into that. All right, so this is the fifth kingdom. Which comes when? When does this kingdom made manifest? In the tribulation. So where is the church? Gone. We are, we are with the Lord, wherever he is. So this is the iron mixed with miry clay, represented by feet and toes. There are ten toes, and the passage identifies that this will be ten kings. And then there is the sixth 
kingdom, and that is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. That is Jesus Christ. All right, the feet and toes, iron mingled with miry clay. First, we will state the facts. Right? Now, what we did the other day, all of a sudden you start just stating the plain facts without adding your opinion. And some things that some people teach starts to seem kind of silly when you just lay it out like that. So this is what we're going to do. Um, this is this, these kingdoms are noted in verses 20, or 41 through 44. So let me grab this and we will just lay out the factual information with no opinion. So number one, feet and toes, just kind of funny, part, potter's clay, and part of iron. Number two, this kingdom shall be divided. Number three, there will be in this kingdom the, this is important, strength. Of the iron. Now, I'm pretty sure, let's read verses 41 through 44 real fast, just so I can verify with my notes, if I can get this top on. Uh, Daniel 2. um, 41 through 44. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron... The kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the king shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another." even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So when it says the iron, this could be a reference to iron in general, or it could be pointing back to the Roman Empire, which is said to be iron, and that it bruises and breaks. That, that is in part where the idea comes from that, that this kingdom is possibly the revived Roman kingdom. Now, when you hear the phrase, revived Roman kingdom, who knows where that phrase is in the Bible? Nobody does, because it's not there. 
That's, that's, that, that, that came out of books and commentaries. It just became a popular thing to say. So it doesn't actually, as a term, it doesn't actually exist in the Bible. The idea doesn't really exist in the Bible. There, to be fair, to be honest, there, there, there are some slight hints that it could potentially be, but there's just not enough evidence there to, to teach that this is a revived Roman Empire. If you were going to use that type of evidence, you would have to, you would, you would, it would be more clear and more honest to say it was a revived Babylonian empire because when you get to the book of Revelation, that's all you read about is, is Babylon. And so I, I, I struggle to, to go along with this. And I'm sure you're not surprised. All right, so also it's important to note It doesn't say this is a revival of the previous empire. It says in this next empire, it has the strength of the iron. Those are key details. So something about this coming empire will have, the, will have the, a, a similar capacity or similar strength to bruise, to break, to do what the Roman Empire was capable of doing. But it doesn't mean it's the Roman Empire. It has the strength of the Roman Empire. Uh, you could take that to say, especially when uh, uh, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom that takes you is inferior to you. Well, it could mean that, that the, the fourth kingdom and the fifth kingdom are, are not inferior to each other. So as the other kingdoms took each other, the inferior kingdom took the, the theoretically the stronger kingdom. Well, in this case, it looks like they could, be, they could have equal strength. They had the, the same strength or the same power, um, which is very possible. Which means that whoever, whoever these ten kings are, when they come, we're going to go back to burning Christians. We're going to go back to you know, putting them to death, drowning them, beating them, stoning them. I mean, you know some of the things some of the Roman emperors did to Christians? It's horrendous. If you, if you haven't read about that history of Christianity and heard and, and seen what Roman emperors did to Christians, Nero used to have dinner parties and they would take Christians and put them on a pike. Do you know what a pike is? It's a sharp stick. They would stick it up through their body and then light them on fire so that he had light for his dinner party. So you would be drinking your alcohol and eating your cheese or doing whatever it is they did at these parties and the light... <laughs> The New Jerusalem, the Lamb is the light thereof. Well, at Nero's parties, you and I would have been the light thereof. They would just stick you on there and light you on fire. They did the the, the most sick and twisted things you can imagine. Uh, If you were strong and athletic, you were going to the games. They're going to see if you can fight a lion with a toothpick. (laughs) Which they know you can't. And so... They, the things they did were brutal and, and just horrendous. And they had full reign and power to be able to do that with, with no trouble whatsoever. So he um, says, thou sawest, number four, the iron mixed with miry clay. Number five. And the toes 
of the feet were part of iron and part of clay. So the toes and feet were part iron and part clay. And then the same sentence says, so. So the Lord is going to summarize it. Right? He's, 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 and I love when the Bible does this. The Bible often will make a statement and then say, even this. Or so, it gives you this concluding statement that helps to summarize what, what, it, what it just said. Uh, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, there's that strength, and partly broken, that's the clay. So it will be partly strong and part broken. Number six. Whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they, sh- they, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Well, that just took this in a whole different direction. They. That's an important word. Who is they? Will mingle with the seed of men. Now, when you're mingling with a seed, what are you doing? Everybody here is an adult. Everybody here knows what it's talking about. They're having babies. You, you know what the process is for that. Many of you here have children. They, something that is, that is not the seed of men, is going to mingle with the seed of men. Right? Is that what it says? Number seven. But they, there we are again, shall not cleave. So it's not going to stay together. It, 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 can't, it can't hold one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. I mean, could you imagine if we went down to the metal guy and said, hey, I need you to take this iron and weld it to this pile of dirt. It would look at you like you were crazy. But that's what's happening here. You, you, you can't do that. You can't intermingle. If you, if you said, I want you to melt down this iron to liquid and mix it with this clay. Well, you just burn the clay up. It just disappears. It can't, it can't hold. They can't bind. They can't hold to each other. And so you, you're going to end up with a jumbled mess. And the first time you try to do something with it, it's going to fall apart. Uh, I, my, I, we took our, my daughter to the, to the zoo um, it was a while back here in Uganda, and they have all these statues made of concrete. But the, in the concrete, because somebody has convinced not just Uganda, but the world, that plastic's going to kill the world. So in order to recycle plastic, they take the little bottle caps, plastic bottle caps, and put it in the concrete. But when you go see the statue, all the bottle caps are falling out because <laughs> it can't bind. It can't stay together. It makes no sense. We, we like to eat at Plot 99, and that's, that's their NGO. They're going to save the world by getting rid of plastic. And so they won't, ser- they won't serve you with a plastic spoon. They won't give you a plastic straw. But if you get a to-go cup, they give you a plastic cup. <laughs> One day we were sitting there, and, and the, the waitress, we, we had gotten to know her pretty well, and I was talking to her, and I said, 
I find it interesting. You won't sell, you won't give anybody anything that has plastic, but you sell alcohol. And she looked at me like, yeah. She had no clue there was a problem with that. I said, you know, alcohol kills far more people than plastic. And she said, no, it doesn't. (laughs) It absolutely does. So we looked it up and alcohol worldwide kills about 1.2 million people every year. That's, that's a lot of people every year who die through some alcohol-related incident. We tried to look up the stats for plastic. <laughs> and every article that tried to give you stats complained about people who live next to a landfill, which means there are no stats on people dying from plastic. You know who dies from plastics? From plastic? A pelican. <laughs> I don't care about a pelican. You know, you... you, you I'm not trying to save a seabird. I just want a straw that doesn't fall apart when, when I'm drinking out of something. And so the, the, when, it, when it comes to when it, anything, you, you, if you had Brother John in here and you said, Brother John, I want you to take, I, I, want, you to, you know, uh, I want you to build a slab for me, but I want you to mix it with dirt. You can't do that. You can mix concrete with sand. It binds very well. They go together. But you can't take dirt out of the ground and go mix it with concrete and hope that it's going to stay together. You're going to create a problem. It's going to fall apart. It's going to crumble. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. You can't mix iron with clay. They're going to try that. And some freak creature is going to come out that we'll talk about in just a moment. And in the days of those, or in in the days, so we went from they, number eight, went from they, to these kings. All right, so the insinuation is that this mingling is going to produce, this mingling of they with the seed of men is going to produce these kings. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now these are the facts as laid out in the passage. Now that's just... That, that, we haven't gotten to my interpretation. I, I talked a little bit about some things that I think, but for the most part, this is what it says. Iron mixed with clay. It's going to be a kingdom that has 10 kings. They, whatever the they is, is going to mingle themselves with the seed of men. It's going to have the, the strength of the iron, but it's going to be just as brittle as, as clay. Now that, that's what the Lord said as simple and as plain as, as we can lay it out, all right? Now the interpretation thereof. <laughs> so last night I went and got my um, three Hebrew friends, and we prayed, and the Lord gave me the interpretation. And so now we're going to look at the interpretation. Or my analysis of what this is. Part of potter's clay and part of iron. Um, This doesn't appear to me to be a revitalized Roman Empire. This is an entirely different kingdom that has the strength of the Roman Empire, iron, intermingled with clay. That's an important difference. So the iron represents strength. The clay (laughs) represents man. 
So the weak part of this thing is man. That doesn't, I mean, does that make you feel great? <laughs> like, how does that, does that make you feel all cheerful? I mean, God thinks I'm wonderful. Really? He thinks you're dirt. <laughs> he took you out of the dirt of the ground. And he says, when something stronger than you mingled with you, it fell apart. <laughs> it, it, it means that the, the weak part was so weak that the strong part couldn't bring it up. It brought the strong part down. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, part of potter's clay and part of iron. Um, the, the passage does not teach this kingdom would be the iron kingdom again. There's no indication it's, it's, a, it's a second term, a second, <laughs> you know, in America, the president can, can be president for two, term, two four-year terms, and that's it. And um, this is not the second term of the, of the Roman Empire. It doesn't appear to me that it is anyways. Um, as these kingdoms have progressed, when one falls, it is absorbed by the kingdom that replaces it. Right, so when Persia took Babylon, they didn't leave and leave Babylon. They, they took in all those people. When Babylon... When, when Cyrus came and took Babylon, uh, Darius was made king over the Chaldean people, and they were made part of the, the Persian Empire. All right? So they, they were consumed by the, the, the inferior empire that took them. They didn't disappear. They didn't die. They, didn't, you know, they, they became part of that kingdom. All right? So as these kingdoms progressed, when one falls, it is absorbed into the kingdom that replaces it. That is, Babylon became part of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Medo-Persian kingdom became part of the Grecian kingdom, and so on. Therefore, in this fifth kingdom, we have the iron of the Roman kingdom intermingled with the clay. Now, when I say the iron of the Roman kingdom, I don't mean it's Rome. It is the strength that Rome had. That, that's the importance of these two. The iron is not representing, so in the four kingdoms, it does represent Rome. But in this fifth kingdom, it represents the strength. Right? So when you, read, when you read that passage that we just read, verses 41 through 44, it, it doesn't talk about the iron being Rome. It talks about the strength that comes with being iron. Does that, does that, you understand that difference, that distinction? It's, it's, it's important. So... Uh, the fifth kingdom, we have, um, we have the iron of the Roman kingdom intermingled with the clay. It demonstrates another absorption, but this time there was no cohesion. Right? So, so the iron, the, the, this, this clay kingdom absorbed the strength, the iron of the Roman kingdom, but there, was no, there is no clinging together. All right? So when Persia took Babylon, they just moved right along. They became more powerful. They, they, they continued to do what they wanted to do. When um, Greece took uh, Persia, I mean, it, they didn't fall apart because they took this kingdom. There's something about the intermingling of this, of this kingdom, the iron and the clay, that it, it, it's going to fall apart. It, it, can't, it can't last. It can't stand. Uh, in the Bible, iron is often related to persecution, and it's often, it often directs us to Satan. Um, I mean, there are a ton of uh, references, but we don't have time to look at them. But iron often points to persecution, and it often points to Satan himself, which is very interesting. That's an end, but you probably knew that. 
The Iron Kingdom, the Romans, crucified the Lord and went on to establish vile forms of persecution, specifically of the church. It became a sport for the Roman Empire to persecute Christians. They, they enjoyed it. They were sick and twisted. Uh, there's a, um, a few, there are a few Roman philosophers whose books I like to read or, or look into occasionally. Um, one of them, his name is Marcus Aurelius. And I don't know a whole lot about him, per, you know, his, the historical setting of when he was king. But he is noted as one of six kings in the Roman Empire that were good. He's out of every king who was over Rome, only six of them would sinful men declare to be good. <laughs> that's pretty rough. That's, that's not good. All right, the fifth kingdom is a clay kingdom that has the strength and power of the iron. So there is a relationship uh, there, but, but it is not a revived Roman kingdom. It just, there, is a, there is an interesting connection there, but it's the strength that they're trying to connect us to. Look at verses 41 and 42 again. 41, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes and the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So the, the point here is that the iron is strength. So in this kingdom, that's what the Lord is wanting you to see. It's, it's not that this is a, a continuance of the previous kingdom, but that the iron is strength and the clay is not. And when you mix weak with strong, well, the, the weak is going to bring the strong down. So I should be careful who you marry. <laughs> be careful who you Yoke yourself up to. Be careful what church you go to. Be careful where you work. Be careful what relationships you build because the weaker tend to bring down the stronger. It's rare that the stronger bring up the weaker. Not unless they come to you broken and want help being brought up, uh, then it's unlikely that, that it's more likely they're going to bring you down rather than you bringing them up. Um, anyways, that's, that's a side note. Whatever made the iron kingdom strong is intermingled with this clay kingdom. This is the future kingdom we are looking for. Uh, not, it's unlikely it will be Rome. Uh, this coming kingdom will demonstrate the, the exaltation of man. But through this exaltation of man, it will hurt men. Right, so it's really going to elevate men. And, and through the intermingling of whatever, whatever it is that intermingles with the seed of men, well, it's going to be man that brings it down. <laughs> Because man is weak. This kingdom will produce ten kings. Look at verse 43. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. It's interesting because he said, you saw the feet and toes, which is iron mixed with clay. And here he says, iron is not mixed with clay. <laughs> You don't do that. That's not a good idea. The key to verse 43, they, the iron is they, persons who will mingle themselves with the seed of men. They are separate and distinct from the clay, the clay representing the seed of men. All right, that's, 
Those are the two entities we have here. So you have iron, strength, they. And then you could add here these kings. Over here you have clay, seed of men. These two get mingled together, and it doesn't work out well. All right, look at verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. Do you see that again? As soon as iron is mentioned, it's related to strength. Right, It will be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. That's, it gets that strength, and, and that's, that's what it does. Now, here's the connection. Here's the only connection between the iron that represents, or you know, the metal that represents Rome. And the metal that is intermingled with the clay. It's iron and it has strength. It uses that strength to break and bruise. It's interesting that it chose this word. What would be the first cross reference in the Bible to that? So let's go to Genesis 3. Now what I'm going to show you is what happens if you use cross-references to try and understand it. What a lot of the commentators do is they look at political situations and say, we think it's this or that. Right? We're not going to do that. You're welcome to do it when you go home, but in here we're not going to do that. Genesis 3. Verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the, and the woman. What, what is it? What comes you know, from the woman that is so significant? Seed. The seed of the woman. But, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's a very interesting connection. Christ will have conflict with the seed of the serpent. Now remember, we said over here, iron represents persecution and Satan. When you see it through the Bible, it often points to Satan, and it often points to persecution. And here we are looking at it in Daniel, and it's talking about strength. What is that strength used to do? Break and bruise. This brings us to an important biblical term, one that you guys are familiar with. Son of God. What is a son of God in the Bible? What is the son of God in the Old Testament? 
Son of God. Son. All right, let's look at it. Let's define it biblically, and then we'll look at it. We'll see why it pertains to, to us. This brings us to an important biblical term, Son of God. Let me put it up here. All right. Is it? Is it? Are you sure? You're positive? Okay. When, when you say son of God, it was so used to as a reference to Israel. We'll see. We're going to define it biblically. In the Bible, the son of God, this is important. This is your definition of this term. Uh, the son of God, a son of God. Now we're not talking about, right now we're not talking about the son of God. We're talking about the term in general, son of God. It's used multiple times throughout the Bible. This is the definition. Is a creature or person that is sinless at the time of their creation. Everybody understand the implication of that? So many, many people, individuals and groups in the Bible are called sons of God. Now, the definition of it, biblically, they're called a son of God the moment they're created and as long as they are sinless. Does that make sense? Right, so Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but he remains sinless. Israel is a son of God. They did not remain sinless. Adam is called a son of God. He did not remain sinless. Angels are called sons of God. Some of them remain sinless, some did not. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God at that point in time. In God's eyes, you are a sinless creature. You're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. All right? So we're going to look at those real fast. Um, Adam is a son of God. Angels are sons of God. The nation of Israel is a son of God. Jesus is called the only begotten son of God. Born again Christians become sons of God. Job chapter 1. Job 1 and verse 6. Now, there was a day when the... Sons of God, what are they doing? Came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, I understand there is a teaching. I didn't know it existed. Uh, I'm just naive to these things. But in the Old Testament, men often teach that the sons of God are believers. <laughs> you got some real problems if that's your explanation. Explain to me how these believers went and presented themselves before God and Satan came in with them. We're going to look at Genesis um, 6 eventually. Uh, Yeah, Genesis 6, where the sons of God began to see the daughters of men. So it took 2,000 years before before saved men began to see the daughters of men. How did they have children? 
they just saw them in Genesis 6 right before God killed everybody? <laughs> that just that makes no sense. All right, now that's, that's my perspective. I'm telling you, a lot of great men teach these things, so I'm not mocking those men. You should listen to what they have to say and see if there's any validity to it. But, but I am going to try and highlight the inconsistencies. Look, when you, when you, when you lay out the facts, all right, no opinions, you just break the verse down, comma to comma, and you say, what does it say? And then you start to look at it, and then you listen to what men say, and you, you'll, you'll start finding, do you have a clue what you're talking about? <laughs> Nothing you're saying makes sense if I sit and think about this and try to put together what's being said. If somebody comes to me and says, the sons of God in Genesis were, were, were believers who married unbelievers and had giants, does that make any sense? How many believers marry unbelievers today? And what do their children look like? <laughs> Sorry, do you have a question? Right. Sure. No, that's true. Um, and paradise was there. It is not anymore, but it was. And that, believers did go to paradise. But, but this is, this and Job is a meeting between God, the sons of God, and Satan. All right. This is not, this is not a bunch of men who believe coming to God and having a meeting with them. And then Satan shows up and interrupts the meeting. That's not what's happening here. All right, so but let's, let's continue. Um, look at Job 38. Job 38. This, this one would be really interesting for somebody. So if, if, now I want, this is what I want you to think about. If the sons of God in the Old Testament are believers, then you explain this verse to me and help me make sense of it. Verse 30, or chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. Verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Now that's what God says to a man. Where were you? And this is Job, who is a believer. And God says, where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, you tell me where you were. All right, Job has no answer. Verse 5. Who hath laid the measures thereof? If thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All right, is Job a believer? Well, God says you were not there. So obviously Job is not one of the sons of God or the morning stars who sang and shouted for joy. It's the angels. They are sons of God. They were there when he laid the foundation. They existed prior to, to the earth coming into existence, according to this passage. Or sometime really close to the, to the time of the laying of the foundation. 
Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather, gather thee from the west. That's verse 5. Verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and, and to the south, keep back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth and everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. Now, this is what's interesting about this. And this is the beautiful thing about God. This is talking about Israel, right? That's the context of this passage. He said, they are my sons and daughters. In verse six, but then in verse seven, it's him. Israel is a son of God. Everybody get what I'm saying or what I'm showing you there? Look at Hosea chapter 1. Hosea 1 and verse uh, 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in, in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people... You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. So, at the close of the tribulation period, the nation of Israel will be born again. All right, now that, don't confuse that with being born again today in our situation. It's a whole different matter dealing with Israel. In fact, when someone says someone in the Old Testament was saved, that's not Old Testament terminology, it doesn't fit what took place in the Old Testament. So by, by using that terminology there, you're already demonstrating a, that, that you lack an understanding of, of salvation and, and the way things happened in the Old Testament. That's New Testament terminology. All right, now, Israel will be born in a day. They'll be born again. And at that point, they will be called the sons of the living God. All right, because, yes, sir. Testament, uh, I mean, like now, for example, the Bible tells us that uh, when God saved, uh, saved the, uh, Noah in the floods mm-hmm. with his house, mm-hmm. he uses that terminology. Was that physical or was that spiritual? Physical. Right. So he physically uh, saved him. So you. So, so in the same sense. That, it's not in the same sense. No, no, no. Same. In the other sense, that the Bible says. Found grace, which is like saving grace mm-hmm. in the sight of God in Genesis. Okay, so what's your question? So, my question is that if the, in the Old Testament people were not saved, then how do we have the same? I didn't say they were not saved, but being saved in the spiritual sense is New Testament, Testament terminology. Okay, yeah. All right, so for someone to be saved in the Bible, the only place it's used in the spiritual sense is in the New Testament, and it was someone who trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? In the Old Testament, they died in faith. If they died in faith, they went to paradise. If they did not die in faith, they went to hell. But you wouldn't say he was saved. Because if you say he was saved, in the spiritual sense, you're saying he's washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, his his sins are forgiven, his soul is saved. That's not the case. 
He died and went to paradise. Now, it uses the term salvation, and it uses the term saved in the Old Testament, but it's always physical salvation, physically being saved, as in he saved Noah's physical life. Noah found grace in the eyes of God, so he let him get on a boat and not die. Does that make sense? Today, for by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's specifically in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? We have no promise of physical safety today. So you wouldn't say today, God saved me. He, he saved my physical life. I mean, you can say that, and it's good to give God the credit and the glory and the honor, but you don't know if he did or not. It, it just worked out to your benefit. Praise the Lord. You should thank God for it. But Noah knew without a doubt God gave him an opportunity to physically save his life and his family. You would save today, God has saved my soul because I trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah couldn't say that. So, like in the way and the sound, the way they say that uh, I shall not see, I shall not suffer, need to see corruption, is in that spiritual way and the same God. No, that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Yeah, but yeah, it is a prophecy, but still at the same time. No, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. He's literally saying, my physical body will not see corruption. I will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, and then I'm coming out. Just as Noah was three days and three nights in, 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 the, in the belly of the fish. So he, he says, Noah says, in that three-day period, God brought me out, and my body did not suffer corruption. He said, you raised me up from the corruption. So it's, so it's literally talking about your physical body not decaying in the earth. It's not talking about spiritual salvation. And we can talk about it more later. All right, Luke, Luke 3. Luke 3 and verse 38. Um, this is the lineage of Jesus Christ, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam was sinless when he was created. It didn't last that way long. Um, it, it probably went pretty quick. Genesis 5. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. In the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now, this is going to be an important um, idea. Adam was created and called a son of God. Right? He's made in the image of God. Now look what happened to his sons. Verse 3. And Adam lived in 100 year, 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, and the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived in 100 years, 
105 years and, and begat Enos and it goes on and on and on. So whose image was Seth made in? Adam's. Whose image are you made in? Adam. <laughs> so you are made in the image of your father. That's why you have a sinful nature. That's, that's Romans 5, that sin passed upon all men. It all came from Adam and passed down to us. All right? So Adam was a son of God as long as he was sinless. Adam's sin was put out of the garden, began to have children. Those children are made in the image of Adam. Uh, he had a son, Seth. Seth had a son who was made in his image. You know, it's, we just read, if you go and you read the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew, and you read the lineage of Jesus Christ in Luke, and then you come and read Genesis chapter 5, you know what happens every time in Genesis 5? They died. <laughs> you go through and you read verse after verse after verse. He had, Adam had Seth, Adam died. Seth had Enos, Seth died. And just on and on and on. There's no death in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now we know those people died physically, but the point is that we're, we're, we're now going into the New Testament where Jesus Christ, who is life, can provide life to you. If you're an Adam, you die. And that's it. Yes, sir? So when a child is born, No, he, he's born sinful. He's born with a sin nature. He is a sinner, therefore he sins. He does not sin and become a sinner. David said, in sin I was conceived. So without the knowledge of sin, the child has sin. Yes. So when they die... No. No. <laughs> no, I'm trying to make sense of things. Sure. I know, I, I know no, it's, it's, it's fine. So, so you're born with a sinful nature. That's why you sin. Right? Now, there, there's a... The, the, Bible, the Bible explains uh, in a few different places a, a period of time in which that child lacks understanding. They're still sinful, but they lack the understanding to know what they're doing. Now, as soon as you realize your child understands they're doing wrong, you need to be concerned about their soul. Does that make sense? So they can go to heaven with a sinful nature. I wouldn't say they go to heaven, but they do potentially go to paradise with a sinful nature. Just like everybody in the Old Testament who died in faith and were not washed in the blood of the Lamb. Potentially, yes. Now, the, once, the, once they reach what, what we often call the age of accountability, what that means is they reach a point where they're, doing, they're committing sin, but they know it. Now, now that child's soul is in danger of hell. Yeah, but what has often been told here was that that child goes to heaven. Well, well it's... Goes away. Yes. So... You said about yes. So, yes, it still exists. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So we don't have time to, to fully explain it. We can talk about it later. The simple answer is yes. Paradise still exists. It was taken from the heart of the earth to heaven. The indication in the Bible is people in paradise are still in paradise, though it is physically located now in heaven. Yes. Well, what I think that the, the best example that I can hope to bring out is what is happening in the book of Psalms. When after David has got a child with Bathsheba, yes, the child the died. Lady, the child later on passes out, and David says, "I know who see him." Right. And of course, we know very well that David has never gone to heaven. Right. David has never gone to heaven and he didn't go to hell. So David is in paradise and he said, that child, I will see that child again in paradise. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Any more questions before we... You look curious. (laughs) All right. All right. Luke or... uh, All right. Adam was God's son, but Adam's son was made in Adam's image. After Adam's sin, man is no longer a son of God until he is born again. All right. John chapter one. You should know this verse by heart. John one. Verses 12 and 14 through 14. But as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So when the Roman Catholic comes and says, we're all just the children of God, no, we're not. You're the son of Adam. Jesus told the Jews, he said, you're of your father, the devil. (laughs) All right. So you belong to Adam or you belong to the devil or you belong to God. Those are your only options. And, and so you, you, you want to be very careful about which one um, and make sure you're on the right team. Verse 14. Look at, let's read that real fast if I can find it. Verse 14. And the, word was made, yeah, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, of all these groups, um, I don't even know where to write it. Angels. Um, Adam, Israel, so angels, Adam, Israel, uh, man in the church age, all of them failed. They started off sinless, they chose sin. Now, Maybe not all the angels. We don't have the full story there. As far as we know, no redemption is offered to angels. So it looks like part of the angels decided to stay with God and be faithful to the Lord. Another part of the angels decided to follow Satan in his rebellion. And according to Revelation, it may be that another part of the angels do it again later. Um, But many of them failed. Every man, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. From Adam all the way down to, to the world ends. The only hope for man in Christ Jesus. When you're born again, Uganda's favorite religious term, 
I'm a born again. Are you? Um, When you're born again, you become a son of God. It's very important. All right. Now we want to look at three closely related acts of judgment. These are important. It's going to shape the idea going back to the, the strength of the iron and the mingling with the clay. This is our purpose in talking about all this. So we just identified who the sons of God are, right? All of them in the Bible, who, who, any of them who they could potentially be. Now, why would that be important with our study? Sure. So, um, I, the, 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 you, you talked about Genesis 6, uh, where it talks about the, the, the intermarriage that was in Genesis 6. Uh, but uh, you mentioned that the intermarriage was like a, you, um, in Genesis, and say that it came to pass when the men began to multiply in the case of the earth. Daughters of the God and to men, mm-hmm. the sons of God, which you say they are angels, they uh, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them to wives and all the all which they chose. The Lord said, "Much shall not glorify to man for that he shall also flesh and they shall bear men and bring the earth." And uh, now we see in verse four says they were. Giants in the earth in those days. Uh, now, where is the connection uh, between the intermarriage and the giants? Because the, the verse in four simply just say that there were giants in those days. We will look at that. Second Peter. Later. <laughs> We're going to go look at that passage eventually. So we'll talk about it then. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon, upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, make, making them an ensample unto those that after should live godly, excuse me, and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them is seeing and hearing, uh, seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul, from day to day uh, with their unlawful deeds. All right, now, you've got three judgments here. Fall of angels. When did it say this took place? Let's read it again. Pay attention, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved under the judgment and spared not the old world, but saved who? So you have fall of angels. 
and Noah's day. And then the third one, let's just look at it. Let's read it again so we make sure everybody's on board. Um, Verse 5, And spare not the old world, but save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. So what's the third judgment? All right, so you have three judgments here, and there's something very interesting about all three of them that we're going to try and show to you. Uh, You have the fall of of the angels, you have the flood of Noah's day, you have the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. All three point to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the context of the passage. So all three have have some reference and and then tied together in 2 Peter, which is talking about what? Eventually, the second coming. All right, now this is interesting. Who's going to come and take down those ten kings? Jesus Christ at his second coming. So we want to see if there's any relationship here to the ten kings and the mingled seed. All right. Uh, Second Peter mentions the angels that sinned and said to be reserved unto judgment. In Jude, we learn they left their first estate. What was the place of their habitation? Come to Isaiah 14. All right. Now, this is going to be a little hard for some of you uh, to take. Might stretch your brain a little bit. But everything I'm showing you this semester, you take it home, you study it, and you decide. Is that fair? You don't have any tests this semester. You don't have anything to, um, you know, where I have to, where I'm forcing you to regurgitate answers on information that I'm giving you. I'm just going to present you with what I believe, and then you take it home and you decide what you believe. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. You say that now. Isaiah 14. Let's read verses 12 through 14. Now, who who knows this passage? Who's familiar with this passage? Who knows what's in this passage? Nobody? Lucifer. Who is Lucifer? The son of the morning. The son of the morning, but he is Satan. And what do we say about iron? It's often, it often points to, to Lucifer, to Satan. Now, it, it doesn't in this passage. What we're trying to talk about, this fall of, of the angels, Jude said they left their first estate, correct? Everybody know that passage, familiar with that passage? So, or their, their, their habitation. What was their habitation? Where were the angels Oh, this is going to be rough. All right. Verse 12. Chapter 14, verse... Uh, yeah, chapter 14, verse 12. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Stop right there. This is what happens. People read, fallen from heaven. And what they say is, he was in heaven. Well, let's read the rest of the passage and see if that's true. Back to verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which disweaken the nations? What nations are in heaven? What ground is in heaven? None? All right, verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. All right, this is, this is describing and explaining the sin of Lucifer, correct? And the first thing he says is, I will ascend into heaven, which means he's not where? He's not in heaven. Where is he? Let's continue. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Where is that? That's the second heaven. Yes. Hmm? There are three heavens. So you have God's heaven, the throne room. Then you have the universe, which is the second heaven. And then you have the firmament, which is earth. Uh, sky is the first heaven. All right? That's, those are the three heavens in the Bible. Now, we continue reading. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Where would the clouds be? The clouds would be right here, which means Satan is where? On earth. Verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. All right, now when... When Nebuchadnezzar said something like that, God immediately made him lose his mind. First, he warned him. He didn't listen. Then God made him lose his mind. He spent seven years eating grass and clawing at trees like a wild animal. That's not what happened to Lucifer. Lucifer was immediately dealt with. Now, I'm going to, again, give you my perspective. Brother Keith sees this differently, which is fine. Brother Keith is a great brother, so you should listen to what he has to say. But I'm going to give you a snapshot, the full picture, according to what I believe and what I've been taught. Genesis 1.1, God created the heaven and the earth. That means it is complete. 
That's the indication. All right. Now, let, let's let's turn there. We'll try to look at it briefly. Actually, let's take a break and we'll talk about it when I come back. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.